need to grab a Bible, I know we have a few out in the hallway. I'm going to ask you to grab onto uh, and to grab it to look at a few passages. And this week I'm going to be looking at a few different things. So I actually did put them in an overhead for you so that uh, you can uh, follow along if you want to look at these a little bit later on. Um, Jesus and I have been having some fun the last few weeks, uh, having conversations about bizarre things. And um, if you were here last week, uh, that was, you know, for those of you who got fire hosed, uh, that was kind of between, because of a conversation of Jesus and I had about me getting some things straight in my life. And this week is no different. Uh, because I'm trying to figure these things out. There's the themes that keep coming up in my life. And I don't know if that happens to you, uh, but there's things that, the words and phrases and, and things that I think that God's really trying to get a hold of me on. And one of those things is, is rhythm. Uh, one of those things is rest. Uh, one of those things is, is tangible. Uh, and another one of those things is gospel. And what is the gospel? And I'm going to try to help, because I think all that stuff really, really kind of fits together. Uh, a lot of times when we think of gospel, we think of this big thing that's kind of uh, ambiguous and we don't necessarily know what it is. Or you share the gospel with somebody, we're going, what does that mean? And for most of us, we think, you know, that have grow, grown up in an experience, we think, we think it's this four spiritual laws where we have to go and we have to like, okay, if you died in a car crash tonight or plane crash tonight, do you know where you would go? You know there is a person who cares. You know, whatever your four spiritual laws said. And um, I'm beginning to believe more and more and more that, you know, and one of the things, you know, before I left, I said there's 10 things I want the church to know, and I shared two of them with you. One of the other things I want, one of the top 10 things I want this church to know and understand to live is how to share the gospel. But it's not going out with four spiritual law tracks or whatever it is. And I really believe, let me just give this a nutshell, and we're going to kind of unpack this today. The gospel is how you live your life. It's how you go, and that's kind of scary, right? Because <laughs> people are watching especially if you wear this label Christian. And so many times what happens is we're a distorted gospel. And the gospel is tangible. The gospel is how we care for our neighbors, our loved ones, our friends, family, even how we care for strangers and how we care for the world and the things in it that we've been given to steward over it. And that is a much bigger picture than the four spiritual laws. To me, the four spiritual laws, four spiritual laws, that's... It could be. Uh, the four spiritual laws lets us off the hook, I think. And God's asking us to do much more than that. He's asking us to live the gospel. And I want to share that with you today, and I got an illustration, I hope, at the end, because I'm always trying to come up with things uh, that do so. I wanna, today, I just want to run some ideas by you. I want to talk to several groups of people, several of you here. And I want to talk to those of you who, who find yourself in cubicle world. And maybe you're in, you're in an office. You're trying to share the message of Jesus and you're trying to share it with all your heart, but somehow in the midst of you sharing the gospel of Jesus or sharing Jesus with somebody, it gets turned on you. And instead of sharing, you end up defending Christianity when all you're trying to do is share with people the love of God. Uh, you know, you, know you, you have people who get hostile when you want to share, and, and they say, well, what about this? What about this? What about, and they start asking you questions. You find out like, I just wanted to tell you that God loves you. That I don't know about that dinosaurs and you know cavemen and uh, you know, I don't know you know and and what about this? And you find something? No, no, no. I'm just talking about this thing here. And and, and you end up, you know, and you, you get start thinking to yourself, what exactly am I inviting people to? Because now you're on the defensive. And you're kind of going, oh man, 
because that's what, anybody been there? Been, is it just me? You know, and then you end up questioning your, yeah, they're right. What, what am I inviting people to? And that's what I want to talk to you. You're doing your best to clearly and compellingly articulate your faith, right? And you find yourself with what, what exactly am I trying to get across here? Did they not pick it up? Did not get it? You know, or maybe you're here today and you don't know a whole lot about God and Jesus and this whole church thing. You have this sense like, you know, I know something's there. I have this inkling there, there, there's something there. But some of the ways you've seen it expressed just didn't click for you. And you're just going like, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, so what it is as churches, so what is it as churches, as Christians, as communities of Jesus following you know, followers carrying the Jesus revolution along, what is it that we're inviting people to? Because if we're going to start a revolution for Jesus, we have to understand what we're inviting them into. And so I, I want to present a way of thinking about it, and if, if you find yourself at the end of this time today thinking, you know, man, I have to think about that. I, I, I don't know. Then I will have succeeded. That's all I want you to do is I just want you, you don't have to agree with me or anything. I just want you to think about it and give you something to think about this this next coming week and during this christmas season because as jackson said man i love creasters i really do because it's there's that's the only time that they feel like they, they come into church and you know sometimes they come out of a guilt but i think there's something beyond that that pulls them into church two times a year and maybe they're not living it out in the rest of the year but it's two times a year where you know you have a captive audience to share with them the love of god and i just love that opportunity because maybe some of you in here at one time that was you Easter and Christmas, you just went to church. But somehow something happened in one of those times. You heard something, and it grabbed a hold of you, and it moved you to that place to enter into the gospel story. And I think it's a beautiful time. I think Christmas is the easiest, easiest time to invite somebody in to the, to the story. And I want to assure you today, and I want to, that's why I want to talk to you about this today, so that you understand what you're inviting people to. What is the gospel? So I want to present the way I said, and I hope I succeed. So I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to look at a bunch of different verses today, but Deuteronomy chapter, and we're going to look at real quick five different passages, if you notice, and I, ho I hope you will right away, or you will along the way, a certain theme. There's a theme to these passages I want, I want to share with you, and I'm going to make some observation about these passages, then I'm going to move to Jesus and, and ask questions about what is, Je what is Jesus doing when he comes along? What, what is Jesus inviting people to as, as he comes along? So now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This section is called the Shema. I'm not very good at the Hebrew and stuff, so I'm probably not even saying it right. You know, that's just, you know, I really pay attention to that class very much. But it's called the Shema, all right? Say that, Shema. All right, it, it is, every Jewish person would do this. They, they do it today, they do it midday, or they do it in the morning, some do it in the midday, and they do it at night. This would be their chant. And they would sing this. They would recite the Shema. It's like a statement of faith. This is, this is their big thing that they would say. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is what they say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Hebrew one for, word, uh, for one here is echad. Echad. Everybody say echad. Okay, do it again, but say it with a little bit more spit. Echad. It's okay, you can spit on the person in front of you. It's okay. It's one of the central words in the Hebrew text. God is echad. God is one. 
Let's look at Daniel chapter 9. In this prayer, Daniel is making another statement. First off, God is a chad. God is one. And two words that, that Daniel is going to use to describe God. And we're going to focus in on just one of these words. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. Here's what he says. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. So God is one, God is a chad, and God is forgiving. Now turn to the New Testament, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, and there's a writer named Paul, and he's in the city of Athens, and, and he's in this place where all those philosophers of the day, they, they, they would gather and exchange the latest ideas on what's happening and what's philosophy about religion, about politics, about God, they'd explain all this, and there's this hill, and the Latin phrase for this hill where they gathered was called Mars Hill, all right? So in Acts chapter 17, Paul's trying to explain to these people the idea of that there is one God. And in the city, one historian actually said this, it is easier to find a God in this city than to find a man. Because some estimates say that there are around 300,000 gods in Athens. Isn't that amazing? And so Paul comes in, and he wants to explain to them um, there's just one God. And in a bit of an uphill battle, isn't it? He's, okay, one God, and you guys all believe in over 300,000 gods. So, he, so well, here's what he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, about the God he's talking about. Here's what he says. And he is not served by human hands, as if he needs anything, because he himself, this is God himself, gives all men, all people, all men, all women, life and breath and everything else. So he's arguing this God is a giving God. This God is a generous God. This God gives everything you have. He gives you your life, your breath, everything that you have, this God gives you. Every good and perfect gift, this God gives, gives, and gives. God is one, God is forgiving, and God is generous. Now go to 1 John. 1 John, almost to the end of your Bible, all the way to the right, almost. Um, the 1 John makes a couple more claims about God. We're going to look at two passages in John. 1 John, I should say, about what God is like. 1 John 1, 5. And don't worry, this is all going to come together, right? 1 John chapter 1 talks about walking in the light. Light and darkness uh, throughout Scripture are metaphors. And John uses these metaphors quite a bit in all of his writings. And here's what he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. And this is what he says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. So God is light. God is one. God is forgiving. God is generous. And God is light. And maybe instead of light, you can use the word truth. Wherever there is light, light shines in and shows you how things really are. That's what John's saying. That's what truth is. That's how real, that, that, that is the reality of it, is that light is truth, all right? And then notice in John chapter 4, now flip over there just a few more chapters, verse 16. And so we know, and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love, right? God is one, God is forgiving, God is generous, God is light, and God is love. So what do you think we're going to talk about today? God is one, God is forgiving, God is generous, God is light, and God is love. And this, my friends, is the gospel. I'm just going to tell you that. Now what's fascinating in the Bible is you don't really have writers of the Bible Bible, and here's where we get into problems, because we want to argue this. You really don't have writers in the Bible arguing whether or not God exists. You rarely have a debate whether somebody's trying to convince you that God actually exists. No, 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 seriously, seriously, there is a God. Let's go back, there is a God. You have verses, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 
in the beginning, God created. It didn't talk about, well, in the beginning, God, and this is where God came from, this is what God looked like. There's no explanation of where God came from. Or even, if there is a God, God is assumed. You don't have any right to say, no, seriously, trust me on this. There really is a God, but they're saying, this is what God is like. You don't have people trying to prove there is a God. They simply talk about what they think. The God isn't many. This God is one. This God isn't about hate or about wrath. This God is, is for love. This God isn't stingy and cheap. This God is generous. In 1962, there was a book written by a bishop named John Robinson, Robinson and he called it Honest to God. In it, let me just read it to you, then I'm going to explain it to you. This is kind of heady. In it, he says this, Traditional Christian theology has been based upon the proofs for the existence of God. The presupposition is that God might or might not exist. They argue from something which everyone admits exists, the world to a, a being beyond it who could or could not be there. Let me, let me just kind of read that again because this brother's a little bit thick, all right? He, 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 this brother, he, swim, he swims in the deep end, if you would, you know, okay? So let me, just, let me just, you read him, you go, what did he say? What? What he's saying is that people, us, we generally argue from something which everyone knows exists, right? A world. To, to a being beyond it, namely God, who could or could not have been there from the beginning. He says the purpose of the argument of many Christians is to prove the reality that God is there. Make sense? Okay, 11 of us. Okay, we're great. All right. He says that oftentimes Christians get backed into the corner at the water cooler and, and trying to prove that there is a God out there who really exists. Rather, we must start the other way around and assume that's the way it is. God is, by definition, let me give you a definition of what God is, and this may change your world. God is, by definition, ultimate reality. That's what he is. And one cannot argue whether ultimate reality exists. Robinson says that God is the thing behind it all, that God is the thing that's deeper than deeper than deeper than deeper than deep. God is the thing that's before, 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 before. God is the thing that there's nothing else before. There's nothing before God. God is that which there is nothing deeper. God is that which there's nothing bigger. God undergrids it all. God is the very ground of our being. Now, maybe you can say this, and we're, we're going to say that um, when we talk about God, what we're really talking about is ultimate reality, because that's what God is, all right? What, what do you think the basis of it all is? What do you think is that it holds it all together, you know, below, 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 below? What, what is this thing that holds this thing all together? Um, this last summer, uh, I was talking to a Muslim. And uh, I, I love having conversations with people of different religious backgrounds because it's always interesting to me. Uh, an amazing guy, and we had the most fascinating discussion. We're, we're talking about families, and we're, and we're talking about, you know, how to raise your kids to be compassionate and, and to be kind and to be, a, you know, be, a, be a, a useful citizen in this world and all that. And we're discussing the scriptures. And at one point, it was like, okay, I just had to ask. I said, I got a question for you, because I know there's, there's going to be a difference in how we're thinking about some things. I said, where are you on this whole God deal? Because, yeah, I mean, you're like turbo Muslim, all right? You're, 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 as far as I can tell, you're like super Muslim. You know, you're like it. I mean, I go, if there was a Muslim, you'd be in the, you know, you'd be in the dictionary with the, you know, that's you, super Muslim, all right? And he's talking about all the good deeds he does and all the things and, he, and all the stuff he memorizes and all the prayers. And I said, okay, 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 let me just ask you, when it's all said and done, when, where are you in Allah? 
Like, how are things between you? How was your relationship? If you died tonight, you know, and he says, well, you know, it's like, let's say you got hit by a car. You know, I know it's not the best illustration, but I'm stretching, okay? I'm trying to, I'm trying to ask this guy something. And I, if you got hit by a car tonight, like, where would you go? How does it work? Is what I wanted to ask him. He says, well, uh, whatever Allah's will is, that will be. So I said, like to me, you're a superstar Muslim. You do everything right. You've done all the right stuff, but you don't really know where you stand with God? He goes, yeah. I said, so you can kind of like be in or you could be out, and God could just say, Allah could just say, oh, sorry, you're out? He goes, yeah. I said, and you don't know? He goes, uh-uh. I said, so at the base of all, there's really no security. It's whatever Allah wills. And I realized at that moment, as we're having this conversation, we're not talking about religion anymore. We're talking about reality. Because my understanding is that the basis of everything isn't chance or whim or, or faith, because, but, but is a God who is love. Does that make sense? You know? So, so see, our discussion about religion left religion at some point. We we're no longer talking about the Christian faith, Muslim faith or Islam, Christianity. We're talking about what you think is the very, 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 very deepest level of reality. And at the bedrock of it all, this guy thinks chance or fate is at the very deepest level. And I realize my understanding of it at the deepest, deepest, deepest level is love. I'm loved. And I'm going to be with God forever. Now let's take a little bit further. Let's talk about the teaching of Jesus and see what exactly is that, you know, it's interesting. See what Jesus is inviting people to. John chapter 14. Turn there if you would. Notice what Jesus comes along. We've got to notice what he's inviting people to. Because I'm always looking at what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? If Jesus does it, Jesus says it, if Jesus models it, it's probably a pretty good idea for us to do that same thing. So I'm saying, what is Jesus inviting people to? Often you pick up from the people the impulse that Jesus came to start a new religion. That's what it looks like. And people, people are thinking that he came to start something new. Kind of like, my religion can beat up your religion. It's faster, it's stronger, it's more efficient, it's more miles to the gallon. My religion is better. And notice what Jesus keeps insisting about his relationship with the Father, with God, with the deepest, most profound level of ultimate reality. And this, this is, I look at the scripture a little bit different. John chapter 14, verse 9. And here's what he says. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who sees me has seen the Father. Here's what Jesus is saying. Watch me. Watch me now. When you see me in action, I'm showing you the Father. He, he's not coming to start a new religion. He's coming to show us reality, what it looks like at its deepest. He says, I've come to show you how things really are. So God is what? God is love. And Jesus says, you're going to see unconditional, unbridled, ferocious love like you've never seen before because God loves everybody. I'm going to show you what it looks like to love everybody no matter how dark and how messed up and how bloody and how gory it gets. I'm going to show you what it looks like to love everybody. Why? Because God is love. So I'm going to show you at the deepest levels of reality what that looks like when they take on flesh and blood. Are we tracking? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
And ultimately, that's going to look like the cross, right? God is giving. God is generous. The very ground of everything is generosity. You know what I'm going to show you, Jesus says? I'm going to show you generosity. I'm going to show you giving. and, And I'm going to give everything that I have. Again, which ultimately means the cross, right? The cross, like, you can't get more generous than that. Once you've given your life, you don't have anything else left to give. So what's Jesus doing? He's walking around, and he's displaying God is one. And, and how does he do that? Healing. He's bringing people back into wholeness. He's bringing people back into health. You know, he's healing, loving. He's helping restore things to the oneness way that God intended. That's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to usher in and show us what it is to be, you know, what God is like. He wants us to know. Jesus says, I'm here to show you what it's like at the very deepest levels of existence. Notice what he says on the flip side of this. In John 15, 23, I always thought this was just kind of, why would he say that? Because God's love, right? He makes this statement which seems like kind of strong statement, right? John 15, 23, he who hates me hates my father as well. He says, if you have a problem with forgiving people, you have a problem uh, with people who have wronged you and you refuse to forgive, God is forgiving, so I'm going to show you what it's like, looks like to forgive to the point on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them. He says, if you hate forgiveness, if you hate generosity, if you hate unconditional love for everybody, then it's not going to go well for you and God because you're going to be out of sync of who and how God is. Jesus is the ultimate source of disclosure of how things really are. See, what often happens sometimes is we mistakenly think we're inviting people into a religion, don't we? But the fact is, we're inviting people into the reality of how it is. Jesus is reality at its most raw. He wants to show you what love looks like, to show what generosity looks like in the most pure, raw form. Jesus exposes us to the deepest levels of our existence and why we exist. He shows us why it's the best, why it's the basis of everything we are and everything we do. He wants to show us what God looks like. So Jesus says, if you hate what I'm doing and why I exist and why I'm living, then it's not going to go well for you because I'm showing you what God is like. Now, let's make this practical. I like to do that. Let's bring it down to where we live. Um, Let's bring it to to our situations in our everyday life. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have a friend that's searching? They're, they're just, you just know they're just out there. They're, they're searching for whatever it is they're searching. Yeah, most of us have a friend that, that's searching. How many of you friends who left the church at some point because they're searching? They said, church isn't giving it to me, so I'm searching. All right, you know, and the impulse is this. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to try and find the truth, right? Now, now, if they start asking questions, and I believe this with, the, with everything in me, if they start asking questions, they start digging, they, and they keep asking questions, and, and they keep trying to get at what's true and, and what's real— because God's ultimate reality, right? I just said that. I just talked about it. I showed you a scripture. God is ultimate reality. And so if they dig long enough, if they search long enough, you know what they're going to run into? They're going to run into God. I believe that. I trust that in my whole heart. So if I have a friend who's searching and they're asking difficult questions, do I want them to stop the search or do I want them to keep going? Keep going, keep going, keep going. I encourage the search for friends who are searching. We encourage the search. We want them to ask deeper, deeper, more important questions. If I have a friend who's searching, whatever I do, I don't want them to stop the search because if they stop the search, they won't find God. 
And I just always encourage them, don't ask just one good question, keep going, don't stop, keep going, keep going, keep going, because if I trust that they keep going, at some point, they're going to hit bedrock. I've been watching this show, Gold Rush. Anybody watch Gold Rush, the TV show? Woo, Gold Rush! I'm pulling for those guys from Sandy, Oregon. Get the gold. But before they find the gold, they have to hit bedrock. And beneath the bedrock, you know what's always beneath the bedrock? Gold! So if I trust, if my friends search and they keep digging and digging and digging and digging, they're going to hit bedrock. And what's below the bedrock? It's God. I have a friend who wants nothing to do with religion. And the reason why he says he doesn't want anything to do with religion is because of all the... You may have an idea? Because of all the what? Christians. But you know how he says it? All the hypocrites. You ever heard that before? Bunch of hypocrites, bunch of hypocrites. You know, and I thought, man, I don't know any hypocrites. Because that's my problem is denial. You know, I, I don't know any. My friend's like, well, he doesn't want any part of religion because he doesn't want anything to do with those hypocrites. So we had this fascinating discussion. And what I'm learning to do is take my discussions deeper and to take them off the whole thing of religion. That's what I'm learning to do. So, so I said, can you define a hypocrite for me? What, what, what is a hypocrite to you? He says, well, a hypocrite's somebody who acts one way with one person and one way with another person and another way with another person. So I said, what you're saying to me, good counseling skills, right? Repeating back what they've said. So what you're saying to me is that a hypocrite is somebody who's not one, but they're one, two, or three different people. There's one for this poor group of people, there's one person for that group of people, and yet another for another group of people. And he said, yeah. I said, I said and what's wrong with that? He says, he says well, people should be just one person. People should be the same with everybody they're with. And I said, so you have this sense, like somebody who's split, like this person is this way with this person and, and another person, that's not how they were made to be. He says, yeah, exactly. I said, let me ask you another question. How should people be? And uh, he says, well, people should be, they should be one I go, oh, really? So you're telling me you have a sense that a hypocrite is out of sync with who they are created to be. He says, well, yeah. You tracking with me so far? I mean, this is fast, because Deuteronomy, what does it say? God is love. God is one. So what I say to my friend is, so your problem with a hypocrite, especially a religious hypocrite, is there's somebody who claims to follow God, but they're out of sync with what God is. He is, he is one, and they're not. He said, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I feel. I said, so really, your sense is that people who follow God should be more one than anybody else, if anything, right? If anybody should be one, they should be one, right? He said, yeah. Now I said, now, have you been perfect your whole life? Are you always perfectly one? And he goes, no. I said, so sometimes you act different with different people. He goes, yeah. I said, so there's a sense of lack of oneness in your own life, isn't there? He goes, yeah, there is. See, what happens is, when we interact with people, is we don't keep pushing and asking the questions. And I said, you know, one of the things I talked to him is, is that, do you guys know who else had a hard time with hypocrites? Jesus. So, with my friend now, instead of me trying to drag him, kicking and screaming into God's kingdom, you know, be like, oh, okay, I'll do it, but I don't want to do it. You, you know, you probably have friends like that. You know, I, I just don't want to go to hell. You know, so, so all of a sudden, I'm saying to him, you know who else felt the exact same way that you do? Jesus. He had a problem with people who claimed to follow God, and yet they weren't one. He goes, really? I go, yeah. 
Because see, I'm not inviting my friend into a religion. I'm inviting my friend to try to live in tune with ultimate reality. I'm inviting him into a relationship with the one. That's what I'm doing. (coughs) And sometimes we get so confused because we think people are inviting him to a religious thing. Another thing is that we have nothing to fear from the search because sometimes we go, oh, they're searching, our kids are searching, our friends are searching, and, and we are fearful to search. And we often, sometimes when somebody is searching, religious people around him will say, no, 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 you, you know what you know, you know, no, no, no searching. But maybe as Christians, maybe, just maybe, we ought to say to our searching friends, go, go, go. Because they're going to keep digging, they're going to keep going. At some point, they're going to hit bedrock. At that point, they're going to find God. I've seen it over and over keep going keep searching we should encourage them to keep keep asking the questions better questions because if god pulls it all together then i don't have to defend reality anymore because they've experienced it themselves see what often happens is that christians end up at the water cooler i've been there i've heard it i might even been part of that conversation where they're sitting there the christians sitting there going yeah yeah that's all good but you're going to hell i love you but you're going to hell have a good day jesus loves you how many of you have seen this before? You know, it's just to me, whether it's a person standing on the street corner or whether it's somebody on TV or whatever it is, yelling at people, they're going to hell. They're going to hell, repent! You know, at one point, when I was first thinking about going to ministry, I even got myself a big floppy Bible so I could even wave it and tell people they're going to hell. That's what I thought you did. You wave your Bible and tell people they're going to hell. They repent, they come, and you have a big revival. Really, I did! But how asinine is that? Can I say that? I can. Um, you know, but just how, you know? And we do this with our life. And, 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 and all of a sudden, when people start pushing in on how we feel, we find ourselves defending a bunch of stuff that Jesus never asked us to defend. But maybe it's, wait, wait, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm trying to live in tune with ultimate reality, and Jesus helped me to live in tune with how things are at the deepest level of his existence. I'm not trying to convert you to, to, to some system of thought or anything. I'm just trying. I have found a way of living where I am learning more and more and more how to live in sync with how things are, and it's the best possible way to live. Are you with me? That's the gospel. Now we get more practical and more practical and more practical, so let me just, let me just, think, about, just think about this as a church. As people living in closer and closer of how things are, because that's what a church is. We're a community, and we should be living in closer and closer reality of how things really are. You've seen this. You've seen this in our community. You've seen this in people that connect with each other. You see this people that, that are loving each other unconditionally with great passion and great fervor. And something within you says, yes, this is what it's all about. Why? Because these people, they're in sync. They're lined up with how things really are. When you see somebody being generous, what does it do to you? You go, yes, yes, yes. When you see somebody sacrifice for one another, you go, yes, yes, yes. Because a church is a community of people that get it, that should get it, that should be synced up. Church is a community where more and more, where we're in tune with ultimate reality. When people see a community of believers, it's, it's, when they see a community of believers that's in tune with reality, it cannot be denied. You look at the first church. Why were they growing in numbers so darn quickly? Because they were in tune. They were in sync. They weren't trying to defend anything. It was attractive, the first church. 
You see a bunch of people, I don't care what background you have, what religion you have, you see a group of people who take care of each other, and something within you resonates with that. You say, this is a beautiful thing. Would you agree? Because maybe we can find a new way to explain to people what a church is. And we explain to them, well, I have a group of friends, and we're just trying to learn how to live in tune with how ultimate reality is because God is ultimate reality and we want to be lined up with that as well. That's what Jesus does. He brings us into relationship with the very ground of our being. And what happens is, is people make it, make, it as, make it as though Jesus is, you know, Jesus is over there and real life is over there and they rarely have anything to do with one another. You know, I do my church thing on Sunday, but the other 60 days a week, I'm by myself over here and, and it's those people, and if you're here, I, I may offend you. Um, it, you. They're over here, and Jesus is over here, and they're over here. And you know what they end up saying to me a lot of times? Pastor, I'm not being fed. I'm going to go find another church that will feed me. Or, Pastor, the worship, I just can't worship. You know, my question to them is, where are you being fed throughout the rest of the week? What are you reading? What is God telling you? How are you worshiping? Because church, Sunday morning, is not about feeding you. This should be the dessert of what you've done the rest of the week. This is not the meal. And if you're coming for the meal, <laughs> sorry, this is dessert. And sometimes you can have dessert first. I often do. But that's what happens is because we put Jesus over here we put reality over here and we think that everything gets solved on Sunday morning that's not the gospel that's not the Jesus way of life and you end up having strange questions like what does this have to do with everyday life or what does God have to do with this and perhaps the better question should be what doesn't God have to do with this instead of trying to make this uh, religious thing relevant to how we live we want to dive in we want to actually live because somewhere in there if we dive long enough and ask enough questions we're going to find the god who holds it all together because that is ultimate reality and that is attractive my friends now more practical more practical let's let's just take the list from the very beginning just sort through it really quick a little bit first let's look at this god is one god is one this is why we take this inner journey so seriously. This is why we deal with our junk. This is why we drag out all the darkness and the sin and the wounds and the dysfunctions in us. Because we want to be one with God. We want to be the kind of people who are one so we don't have this fragmented self where we act like this with one person, act like this with another. We want to be the kind of people who are one, who are one, who are one with each other. So the ultimate point isn't small groups. It isn't house churches. The ultimate goal is people who are one. What did Jesus say? They, that they may be one as we are one in John 17, verse 22. The goal is why? Why do we spend so much time building into each other and spending time with each other and doing things with one another? Why do we spend so much time learning to become more and more intimate with each other? Because we want to be a reflection of what God is really like. Because when the world that's watching that, when they see that, they can't deny it. They just can't. And it becomes very attractive. A year ago, a couple friends, um, very close, a very close friend to me, um, he wasn't doing well, and, and he wasn't going to make it. And I get a phone call, and late one night, with some of my closest friends, 
we found this friend of mine, and we had this moment where we had to sit down to this loved one and, and just say, we're here for you, but we're not going to watch you kill yourself. And there's a moment, and, and maybe you've had these kinds of moments where there's this oneness in the room. It, it, it can't be explained, but you just know the people involved, and, and it gives, and, and they're willing to give their lives for one another. There's a oneness, and when you, when you see it, this is what you go, this is what God had in mind. And oftentimes it's in the midst of tragedy and heartache. But there's this oneness that happened among them. Why does it resonate with us so profoundly when we see that or we experience that? Because God is one. It's a group of people who are lined up well. One writer calls it being lined up well with God. Next word is forgiving. God is forgiving. Some of you, you're not going to like this. I talk about this a lot. If you have somebody who, have, who has wronged you, if you're here today and you've been wounded by somebody or betrayed or cheated on or a business party who took the money and ran and, or you were abused years ago and you haven't forgiven that person, you get, to forgive means to send away. To forgive means to toss those debts and the person owes you. To forgive is to take that scorecard and send it away. Say, I'm not going to carry that anymore. When people wrong us, when they wound us, they, we, we carry these wounds around. And, and if you carry those wounds around long enough, it's not a very funky walk, is it? It's a limp. It's a, it's a, it's a walk of hurt. And if you carry those debts around long enough over the years, it can really, really, really get heavy. Some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you carry this stuff. And Jesus commands that we forgive. And to forgive, you say, you know, I'm not going to carry this any longer. Why? Because God is forgiving. And when we forgive, we're imitating God. When we forgive, we're lining ourselves up with the way things, how they, how they should be and how things ultimately are the deepest, at the deepest level of reality. We're lining ourselves up with the Creator who made the whole universe. We're coming into harmony and now singing in the same key. And it sounds better. If you're here today, I'm just going to tell you, and there's somebody that you haven't forgiven and you're holding on to it, you're carrying around the bitterness and the root of bitterness and the rage, you're out of sync with the very foundation of the universe, and you're out of sync with God, you're out of harmony, and that's why it hurts so much, because you are not lined up well. Pastor friend of mine um, was telling me about a single mom in their church. And we were having this conversation. He, her husband left her about a year and a half ago. And he left her with four kids, left her with a mortgage. And she's been trying to figure out how to put food on the table, how to care for these kids. Uh, and, uh, she, and she was about ready to lose her house. And another family in this church went to her. She's never met him before. Introduced themselves to her and said, hey, can we take you for a drive? We heard about what you're going through. And they took her for a drive along this single mom. She, she has this walking route that she always does. And there's this house on this route in this neighborhood. She thinks, man, someday, if I ever had the perfect house, if I ever had the perfect life, it would be that house. She says, I'd like to live in that house someday. And they drive into the driveway of this house, not knowing that this is the house that she's been looking at. She said, we heard that you're about ready to lose your house. And we wanted you to know this is the house we bought for you. Not bad, huh? I'm going to my pastor friend. I'm going, now what was their names? You know, um, <laughs> now why is it that if you're here today 
whether you're a Christian or whether you want nothing to do with God or, or, or with being a Christian, why is it that story stirs you? Something in you says, man, that's beautiful. Why? Because generosity lines up with a God who is giving and who is generous. It's lined up well. And those people giving like that, that small everyday, gener- and even those small everyday generosities that you do, very humbly and very quietly, just one simple act of random kindness, it lines up with the very ground of our being. Next, God is light. What is light? Light is truth. Light is shining uh, things in and saying, this is how things really are. You ever been in a situation where you're someplace and there's an elephant in the room and you just know it's there and everybody knows it's there and there's this and nobody will address it and the clock is ticking and finally somebody says, okay, there's an elephant in the room and I just have to say it. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I was going to mention it in just a second. I just want to make sure everybody else had their chance first. But since you brought it up, go ahead. You know, you know, you know and, and you weren't really going to bring it up, but you're glad, and you're, and you're like, oh, finally somebody brought it up. How many of you have ever been in that situation before? I know I've been in meetings like that. I've been, I've been in things like that before. There's a moment of, oh, finally somebody said it. Why is that? Because they brought light into the situation and god is light the person who speaks full truth or at least the last 10 percent of truth that person who says that what needs to be said why does that resonate so deeply in our bones because that person is lined up well they're lined up with the very ground of our being now i've been thinking about all this and and a lot of what i'm talking to you about it's kind of it's kind of heady you know but i'm just thinking about what is the gospel and how do we relate the gospel with all these things that we have to encompass as human beings, as, as Jesus followers? We want to start a Jesus revolution. And I'm thinking, now, how could I explain this? What could be a prop? And I'm always looking for visuals. If you know me, I would like to have props. I'd like to have visuals. I'm always looking for an angle. And how can we explain this in such and such a way that people are going to get it? So I had this idea, and I've been thinking through this, and I've been thinking on something. So I'd like to run it by you, if that's okay. Is that okay if I do that? Okay, thank you for your, uh, you know, your, you know, generous to me in doing that so I can I can do that so I'm gonna need uh, the band the, the mini band up here um, so okay now I want to I want to talk about the God of the groove all right we're gonna try this it could be beautiful go in faith go in faith it, it, it could be great it could be bad but it's gonna, gonna go in faith right what does it mean to be part of a church what are we inviting people into? What is a metaphor, a way that we can think of this and, and we can share our faith as we do the hard work uh, of our insides, or as we try to connect with others, as we learn to be more and more generous? I think Make Me God is like a song that's been playing forever. There's no end, there's no beginning. It's like the eternal jam session, right? So it's been playing forever, okay? So, so maybe we ought to think about God like this huge, beautiful song. And it's just been playing across the ages. No beginning, no end. There's a rhythm, there's drums, there's, there's a bass lick being laid down. It's just rolling. It's just the eternal cosmic groove. This passage from Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There's no other song going on. This is it. This is the ground of everything. It's brought everything into existence. It was from the beginning to the end. 
It'll bring him and history into consummation at some point. A new heaven and a new earth. And it's just going to go on forever. The Hebrew word for this is olam. Olam. Say olam. Olam. Let me say it with some passion. Olam. It means forever and ever and ever and ever to the very end of the vanishing point. Exodus 3.14. Moses comes to God and says, what is your name? And God says, I am. Which really clears things up, right? Like, I'm supposed to go back and tell them you are? Then they'll know. And, and you find, wherever you find 10 rabbis, you're going to find 20 different opinions on what that really means. So even when God asks to get specific on God's name, God responds, I'm it. I'm existence. I'm reality. I'm what holds everything together. I'm just really, really, really that big. I am. Maybe you could say it this way from Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning. I am the end. This is the God that Scripture speaks of bigger and wider and deeper than anything you can get your brain around, that your infinite mind can't comprehend a finite God. It just can't happen. Are we tracking? Do you understand? And so the first caveman went, Ugh, or whatever caveman say, or something like that. I don't know, for thousands and thousands of years, humans across cultures, across continents, across skin colors, across languages, have heard this music from the very beginning of time. There's something more to this life. Maybe you're here today and you're just checking out this religion thing. And what happened to this? You started to hear the music. And when you start to hear it, it's beautiful. And, and you stop listening once you hear it. And you, you want to hear it more. And you have it to be better. And you can't stop listening to it. Maybe it's like, like, like beautiful. And what is happening is you think to yourself, ah, yes, there's more. Maybe, maybe, maybe religion is, is, is taking the plugs out and going, ah, there is more. It's richer, it's deeper than just religion. And what Jesus teaches is, you, you get to be part of the song. There's a part for you to play somewhere in here. Somewhere in this song, there's a part for you to play. And it's happened for thousands of years with a man named Abraham. God said, hey, I'm getting the band back together to Abraham. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to get your friends. A bit like Jerry Garcia, you know? Just travel around. You're going to spread this music. So Abraham's like Jerry Garcia. There's, you know, this kind of part where it deviates a little bit, but you know, he's he's there. He's making it happen. From the very beginning, God is like, I'm looking for a community. I'm looking for a people to be part of the song. I'm looking for people who think it's beautiful and who can imagine nothing less than finding their place in this song. So you have Abraham, and you have the prophets, and you have the kings, and then Jesus comes along, and he's like soloing. You know, Everybody's like, wow, you know, that's awesome, awesome. And so, run with the metaphor with me, all right? And, and so maybe being a Christian is like saying, I'm going to pick up some instrument, and I want to play along. And you start playing like... I'm not very good. Maybe even as a Christian, sometimes you're playing off note. You're playing off rhythm. And it's not a very beautiful song at some points. But what happens is you start to learn the notes. Then, then ever so gradually, you start to play in tune. And you start to play in rhythm with the song. Maybe it's tentative at first, and okay, okay, because he's, he's not looking for you to solo yet. 
Just, just stay with the bass, bass player. Just stay with the drummer. That's all you, just, it's all you know, and maybe God just gives you two chords to play. How many of you are two chord players? You got two chords. A and G or whatever it is. E and G or whatever the two chords are. And man, you guys would play those two chords for an hour. How many tambourine players? Maybe that's all you can do. Like David Jones, you're just a tambourine player. Because you can't play anything else. Because you don't have to be great. You just have to love the music. And you have to be willing to hit a couple of wrong notes. But then, you hit the right notes. And the music intensifies. Maybe that's the evangelism. Going, hey, my friends, do you like this song? I want you to come hear this song. Come and play with me. Because it's so beautiful. And the more you play, the better you get. And you, yourself, you can occupy the groove. You can occupy God's groove eternity. You get to live the gospel. And it's not for spiritual laws. It's ultimate reality of how we're supposed to live. And when you learn to occupy the groove, there's no song like it. And it gets better every time you hear it. It becomes catchy, and you're willing to sing it all the time. It changes the course of your life. And soon, all those around you want to occupy the groove too. Because like the first church, it becomes very attractive. It's not the Coke song we like to teach the world to sing, although it's catchy. It's more eternal than that. It's more practical than that. It's more significant than that. By occupying the groove, by occupying the gospel of what God has called us to, what is innate in our very being of who we are, we can occupy our space, which will help us occupy our minds where we won't have any fear anymore. That is the gospel. The melody of the groove. God is love. God is one. God is forgiving. God is generous. And God is light. It's the ultimate truth. It's attractive. And it's the gospel. And it's what he's inviting you into today. He's inviting you into the song. He's not inviting you into a religion. He wants you to get your groove on. However that looks for you. Heavenly Father, I come before you today. I thank you that you are the God of the groove, that you have given us so much in our life, that you're not asking us to go out and, and you know, tell people they're going to hell. But by our very life and how we live it, that we live the gospel, that it becomes tangible in what we do, that we can bring light and truth and oneness and generosity into all that we are, into all that we have. May you, brothers and sisters in Christ, as you go from here today, don't think that Jesus is over here and reality is over here. May you go today and may you occupy the groove and live out the gospel and join in the music song that's been playing forever and will play forever that God invites you into. In Jesus' name, amen.